0: Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Bleh. This is a conversation with product manager Matt Poland. Uh, Matt was uh, a product manager at Roadrunner in the early 2000s I'm struggling to sort of like qualify what period you want to call this It could be the Road Rage period, it could be the Young Turks period um, I've got to qualify that somehow But anyway, the product managers have been underrepresented in this arm of the research So I'm pretty happy to have a long conversation with him and broadcast that to you guys 1, 2, fuck shit up! i've been trying to conduct these interviews recently is because it's because the schedule's so fucking aggressive i'm like i've got to go wide not tall which is why i'm saying if anyone has any friends bring them all on <laughs> now I, I did um it was amy sciaretto and um and jamie right yes 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 um last week and that was good because that was like It was less research oriented and more just let's just tell some fucking stories because that's what's missing. And similarly, your role is missing from um, the research as well. The product managers have been woefully underrepresented. (laughs) So I do appreciate you taking the time. What are you doing now then? Just out of interest. I've not done a lot of research. I
1: actually, so after being fired from pretty much every job I've ever had, I uh, decided it's probably me. It's not them. Uh so I started my own business. I have a merch company and I actually um I do on demand printing so like my clients are like David Bowie, ACDC, Pink Floyd, um a bunch of classic rock like wow. big classic rock luminaries and so I do you know their their on demand uh, apparel plus like accessories and things like that.
0: Mm, mm. Crazy Okay. So, hell. You did, that's that's Case's story though, isn't it? He just got fired from every job he had, and then decided I'm not going to get fired again. Yeah, let's do my own kinda, thing.
1: I mean, I mean, I wish I could have the success that 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 case had, but uh, but yeah, I mean, some people, you know, some people are just not meant to work for others. And I, <laughs> it took me about twenty years to learn it, but I, I finally did.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. So let's let's. What were you doing before Roadrunner then? What age were you at when? So you started Roadrunner in two thousand, right?
1: Uh, yeah, two thousand.
0: So, how old are you at this point? I
1: am, I turned 50 this year. You turned 50 this year? Yeah.
0: Fucking hell. Yeah,
1: it's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't like it either, quite frankly, but I do. Um, you know, I had, a, you know, I, I, I was in college and, and I, I worked in record stores. I actually worked in an HMV record store in Washington, D.C., Nice. Um, and then, uh, after college, I got my own HMV store up in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. And, um, Hartford, Connecticut is like, sort of like being sent to, I don't know, Siberia. It's just, it was, it was, it it was bleak up there. Um, and, uh, I really, I had always wanted to work in the music business, had no idea how I was going to get into it. And I, had become friends with some of the um, label reps in my store. And one of them mentioned that there was an opportunity at Island Def Jam. Right. So I interviewed for IDJ New York and got the job. And I was doing, um, I was a coordinator for like print work. Basically, you know, the product managers would want posters made or they'd want to run ads or they'd want to make some sort of POP. And it was my job to sort of... um, send out films and right. contact with the, with the produce, you know, the, the, the people that would produce this stuff. Um, and I was there for about six months. And it really, it was a very interesting job because I was a coordinator, but I had my own office with like two TVs and a couch and my hours were nine to five. And then I got paid time and a half for any time after that. And literally, my job didn't start because all the product managers submitted all their stuff at about 3.30 in the afternoon. (laughs) So I had to wait till it came back from the printers. So basically, like I would sit in my office and surf the web and try to find something to keep myself busy. Mm. At 3.30, I'd get inundated with stuff. I'd send it all out. And then I'd wait another three or four hours for it to all come back. Then I'd um, it. Yeah. And, and then I could go home. So I was making more money than I ever thought someone my age should be making doing something that really they didn't need an an individual to be doing what I was doing. <laughs> um, but, but I kind of realized like after about six months, I was like, I'm actually really bored. Like, (laughs) I just, as much as this seems great on paper to get paid to do virtually nothing, I I was going crazy. Um, And one of the product managers there was a guy named Paul Resta, who used to work at Roadrunner. Right, okay. And um, he, you know, he did the, the rock and hard rock artists. And so he and I, you know, I would sit around and sort of shoot the shit with him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was just telling him how just maniacally bored I was getting. And he Paul said, well, Resta. there was no, what's that? Yeah. Paul Resta. Okay. He was a product manager. Um, I believe with Corey, like in the late nineties, mid got to late nineties.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, I come across. Okay.
1: And so he got me an interview at Roadrunner and I went in and I interviewed with, in, with uh, Jonas and Corey and I uh, got the job.
0: Oh, sweet. Was that daunting?
1: Yeah. Was it, it was very daunting. I mean, it was just like, you know, so so unlike some of the the other um some of the other Roadrunner folks who are just died in the wool metalheads. Um I was I was a metalhead for a suburban Jew from Connecticut. <laughs> you know, so so you know, it's all relative. Um <laughs> you know, compared to the other people I grew up with, I was definitely a metalhead, but compared to real metalheads, I was about 60% there. So, um, it was a little bit daunting in that respect that I just, you know, felt like, am I pretending to be something that I'm not? Hmm. But, um, but I loved Roadrunners artists. Yeah, uh, and I, and, and had for you, I mean, I was a huge fan of Machine Head and a Fear Factory and I was a uh, heavy metal DJ in college, and uh, you know, really knew Roadrunner well, and was excited about the prospects. So it, w- it was a little bit daunting, um, but it worked.
0: What was the cult? Uh, this is, I mean, this is kind of like a, it's very 21st century. This question, but what was the culture when you arrived then? Because this is like those last few years was was strange in the sense that. Case tried to ha- add like a top floor, like an MD level to all the offices. Um, I say adding a floor, it basically bringing in like major label credibility. And right. this is something Doug said, which was really, really cool. This The culture of Roadrunner was too strong for these individuals. And for this sort of like level of professionalism that Case was trying to bring in, it's almost like they didn't know they were nailing it. <laughs> they thought it was yeah, too true mean- and they were nailing it. <laughs>
1: I mean, I would say that that, that was, I mean, I was, I was definitely surprised at how, because I, I came in at the 902 Broadway offices, mm-hmm. so they had already sort of done that step up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I, I got to say, I was surprised from when I got off the elevator at how clean it was and how professional <laughs> it was. Um, I, you know, I think I had, I had thought of, you know, black walls and, and, and metal posters everywhere.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and it was not that it was hardwood floors and, you know, uh, gray cubicles, um, you know, and it was, it was surprisingly very professional. right? Um, and, and I don't know if, I don't know if I, uh, if I found that daunting or if I, or if that actually made me a little bit more comfortable.
0: Yeah. You could kind of climatize it. was very, it's sort of, Is that a Connecticut aesthetic, hardwood floors and gray cubicles?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just, <laughs> it, it, it was very similar to Island Def Jam, mm. you know, Island Def Jam, you know, was, was very sort of office spacey. you know i mean it was just uh it it wasn't it wasn't the the sort of freewheeling metalhead meetup that i might have thought in my mind it would be
0: sure
1: um and certainly you know jonas and Corey were were not what i thought of when i thought of you know the the heads of of a metal label i mean they're both clean cut and you know short hair no ink um you know, and I mean, you know, maybe it was just a stereotype that 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 I was thinking. I mean, I I had long hair, and I had piercings, and I had tattoos, and and I thought I wasn't really that "quote unquote" real. So, you know, I was I was surprised to see that uh, there were a lot of people there who were not
0: um, your stereotypical metalheads. Yeah, the ones who sharp at the elbows and whatnot. Yeah. Where's Slipknot at this point? So this is just after Ozfest 99. So is it is this is there an understanding that this is the AAA artist?
1: Yeah. So I came in after I came in as they were, you know, recording Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um and and was there for sort of all the drama that ensued with that. Um, you know, Corey was 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 the head of marketing and he he dealt with that. Um, but I did a lot of I did a lot of the sort of day-to-day tasks related right. to them, you know, but um but he was certainly the one that that dealt with it. I, I would, you know, we, we just hear about what was going on in the slipknot camp in meetings and things like that. Um, mm. but yeah, it was it was in the midst of that sort I'm just, of I'm very, just trying to
0: position it because between nine between ninety nine and sorry, between ninety eight. When did the debut come out? Was it 98 or 99?
1: I thought it was 99.
0: I think I it's thought. 99. Yeah, either way, it, it, between that and Iowa and that two weeks where Iowa and Silver Side do come out, in, in my head, there's like this, there must have been some confusion as to where the priorities were. Um, but the new, the new other had, but they also had this rich, sort of, they had an established roster, but also this thing that was happening. And then this other thing was going to come in as well from Canada. It's, it's just... So I always try. I always try to ask what what everyone's perceptions were of like Slipknot at the time, just because, so just to sort of help contextualize the calm before the storm, I guess. I mean, was Slipknot like.
1: was definitely a a massive priority, mm. um, and and I think at the time, I mean, obviously, so I wasn't there for the uh, the campaign for Nickelback's estate, mm. but I know, you know, I mean, they they, they worked. Uh, two or three singles to radio for that they had middling success but enough to feel that they had established something yeah um I don't I don't think that we quite knew obviously the the explosion that was about to happen with Nickelback um I mean I, I do remember it and I actually still have somewhere Ron Berman you know Nickelback's a guy gave me um a two-song demo of it had how you remind me i want to say maybe it had two bad eyes and so it was like you know before it had been all mixed and everything yeah, and i remember yeah. hearing that and and just thinking you know and I, look i'm not a, i'm not a promo guy but i was like this song is spectacular i mean this is going to be massive mm-hmm. um but, but I thought that for other things it didn't succeed so I you know I may not be the best but, but, but I think that that as as we heard it and certainly the excitement of Dave Lanco and his staff yeah um, was pervasive I mean you couldn't avoid that 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 guys who knew much more than you did about how a song was going to react at radio um, felt that they had a bona fide hit. I don't think anyone obviously thought that it was going to be in the number one song of the year across all formats and be what it was, Mm -hmm. but it was, it was definitely palpable that that was going to be something.
0: That's interesting. Um, It's kind of, it's weird for me because I lived through it. So to me, Nickelback saw like it started what would now regard as like a contemporary hard rock, or at least like an active radio hard rock. It it laid down the blueprints to that. I remember I I did, I did one with, with Ron, um, which hasn't been approved by him yet, so it's, it's still pending when he comes out. And in that, I was in that, I sort of speculate the contemporary artists, and the legacy artists. I'm, I'm, and I'm saying that because I love Aerosmith's Nine Lives. And that was like 97. And for me, for some reason, that's like the main thing. It obviously wasn't. Ron was like, no, you're fucking full of shit. There was loads of bands. Like there was the post-grunge era and had like all these. like yeah, even like Creed, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And, and things like that were, were, the, were really what was laying the, the groundwork for what Not even laying the groundwork, but they were the ones that were certainly there at the time. But for me, it was like I had, I had to get that. Mold smashed off my understanding. My understanding, because as I say, I'm I lived through it. So it's it, that's a really massive. It's a horrible thing about this period. It's easy to talk about the 80s because I wasn't there, and it's right. easy to look at the sources and go, well, oh, what's more credible?" And go, "I'm come to an assessment." But when you're there, it's yeah, you really have the hard. emotional
1: attachment to it, right? Like you yeah. experienced it on more than an intellectual level, so. Yeah. It's hard to detach those two your, your your way of analyzing it to how you actually just experienced it. And when it's music, you experience music if you're a music fan, right? Like yeah. you can't separate that from how you intellectually reacted to
0: it. Which is interesting because no. when we talk about Rodger United, because that was a project that had no that had no precedent, you know, no. apart from some people might say Probot with Dave Grohl is not not the same. No. You know, cuz Dave Grohl and friends is not the same as 56 artist over a 25 30 year period you know what i mean so who are you answering to at this point are you coming in you're coming in as a product manager
1: i'm coming in actually i'm coming in as a marketing assistant so basically oh, right. there was only one product manager and that was cory i mean cory handled everything like he was the primary on every artist
0: really fuck yeah. right yeah. so okay let's elaborate on the role of the the product manager
1: Okay, so, we'll, so and, and I jotted some notes down so I could, you know, I was trying to think of everything that we did. I mean, basically, you know, the product manager is basically the the central nervous system of any project, right? Sure. Um, you know, we're in all the meetings, whether it be the marketing meetings, the promotion meetings, the creative meetings, the production meetings.
2: Mm-hmm. We're
1: there to represent the bands and sort of keep timelines running.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um mm-hmm. You know, the way it starts is basically, you know, the a guy comes to the product manager and says, roughly, we think we're going to deliver the album at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And then that sort of gets us going to, first off, create a budget, get a little input from all the departments on, you know, what they think this project's going to entail and what we're going to need. And then once you have the budget, we sort of work backwards, right? We think we're gonna get the release on X date. Let's go back 60, 90 days and figure out how we're gonna do the marketing and things like that. But first off, you're gonna start with um, creative department and the production department, right? You're gonna get with creative and you're gonna say, look, the album is slated, you know, they're about done recording. We got to think of doing a photo shoot we got to figure out if they have any ideas of what the album is going to be titled. And if they have any ideas, what the designs are going to be, if not, Mm -hmm. then we, you know, the creative department will give them a few different designers to choose from. And we'll start that process of working with the band on putting together the, the creative elements.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This, Um, This is by the way, this is fucking perfect because the entire premise of this entire thing is that these things that we love, didn't happen by accident right and now you're going into the exact nuts and bolts as to how this this process works yeah i mean there's
1: uh, look i'll be honest you know i came into it with no knowledge of this so i'll be honest i was shocked at how many people it took to bring an album you know successfully to the streets right (laughs) i mean it doesn't take that many people to just bring an album Mm -hmm. but to do it successfully it takes a lot
0: yeah, man. Um, it's, 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 yeah, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. So the creative, creative department, uh, they're playing air hockey of, of intellectual uh, milestones and things and assets related to a particular project. And then presumably yeah. coming back to you and saying, right, this cost, this whole thing, our bit, I guess, this getting this designer to do that and getting that guy to do the typeset for the logo. That's 15 grand. Cheers. Move right. on or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, and and, and it's different, you know. I mean, uh, our the, the head of creative for, for most of my time there was a woman named Linda Kuznets. Okay. Um, and you know, she had a great sense of the aesthetics of of the bands, and she also um, had a good sense of you know what designers matched up well with what bands. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, um, certain bands have a very particular idea of what their image should be i mean there are famous stories about um Pete Steele and the exact shade of greed that it had to be you know and i'm sure of anyone i mean I, I listened to your your talk with Mark Abramson i mean there are many people who can tell you more about Typo but i definitely heard about the Typo greed um,
0: tone 369
1: yeah so so exactly so so it's um you know, so so it really depended from artist to artist, and sometimes it was it was great. You had an artist who could sit down and say, "We have this idea of a skull, and it's going to look like this." And we even have a friend who's a designer, and so it would, and we'd be fine with that. Like if you've got it, great.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but sometimes it would be like, "We got an album title, and that's about it." <laughs> <laughs> you know um and so it was it was it was definitely a process um and then you know it was the photo shoot and you know sometimes it was does does someone in the band need to get a haircut beforehand or does someone need to lose weight or all these things like these things you never think about right like but it was definitely um a whole part of the process but once we got that ball rolling um, we then, you know, we're in the creative we're in the production meetings, and we'd sit down with our head of production, and again, we slate in the release. And when you basically, you know, we had the Roadrunner intranet, which was when you put in the release, you could then enter in all the other assets that were sort of going to be related to the release, whether it be promos, whether it be um, like a radio single. Mm-hmm. Something like that. It could be POP. Um, okay. You know, it, it's it's all different. All the things that any of the departments would need to work a project. Right. So, so that internet was like
0: oh oh so super. It's, it's like cloud storage for projects before. I mentioned the internet a lot because everyone who talks about the internet, first of all, like ten people claim to have invented it from the this- <laughs>
1: rich perkins may not have invented it but he definitely perfected
0: it he definitely had that he definitely was there with presumably basic or python or whatever was going on um but everyone everyone goes the internet was so effective at what it did that i now in my current line of work use a similar model that's what everyone tends to say but they never elaborate on exactly what it was so when you say like it it, it was way to have all effectively your project files yeah. Yeah. Things. It just,
1: it, it was, it was a place where you could just know sort of everything about a project. Right. Um, you know, all the dates that, all the salient dates um, when product would be delivered um, things like that. So that, mm. you know, when a department needs something, they can be like, Oh, it's going to be in on this date.
2: Right. Right. Okay. Um,
1: and so, and, and of course, you know, a and R delivers something late or the mix takes longer, or any hiccup along the way pushes it and then everything sort everything
0: of on cascades
1: down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so so that's, you know, those are sort of like the the nuts and bolts, like the physical. we' we're, we're, we're getting going with creative. We've got our our sort of core dates in the production schedule. And then now we're starting to work with maybe the touring department and the publicity department and our web marketing department um, to start figuring out, obviously, with touring, trying to get them on a tour or if yep. they're headline caliber to book the tour. Um, and then, obviously, with press and the web, you know, just about um, announcing a release date. Mm-hmm. starting to trickle out information, you know, whatever the whatever the marketing plan is going to be, um, you know, how we're going to sort of start unfurling it in a consumer-facing way.
0: So is your priority in this the timeliness of it? Because it sounds like your role is more of a project manager role at this point. It's like, product, I know product, in a conventional sense in my world, product manager is like someone who aligns themselves to this one service or thing. And then they're usually a main stakeholder in the surrounding projects. But if we're talking about an album life cycle, that's going to be one project because it has a finite endpoint. because you want to get down to the second album or you drop the band, that instance and cycle is no longer in effect. You're now doing the next one, but it, right. it just seems like the way it's all staggering is like, that's where the administrative function of the product manager is. It, it's in that life cycle, not aligned to one thing. But it, it's less sexy to call it that, I guess though.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, you know, I it, it, I mean, I don't know if product manager is a particularly sexy term either, right? <laughs> but, but I think that, I mean, in a way, yes, you you were managing the physical product mm. to get, you know, to get the physical thing into stores. But as as this process goes on, we also do a lot of the traditional marketing. So we would be responsible for. Any um, consumer-facing advertising, right. so any right. any TV spots that we did, um, any magazine ads, any sort of promotions that we could set up outside, you know, with a maybe with a partner like a co-promotion, mm-hmm. um, that would come directly from marketing. So, so we had a fair deal of creative free reign. Yeah, um, we weren't tied into just. Getting everything that everyone needed. Um, I think that was definitely our core function to to yeah. to make sure that that once um, once a, you know once the release date is set up that we're making sure that everything continues to flow. It needs you know to to attend. Um, but we also, because we're in on all these meetings with these different departments, we also it's it's kind of nice to be able to um I don't know have an opinion whether it's taken or not.
3: <laughs> um,
1: but but be able to express yourself, you know, on on something with the promo guys yeah. or with the touring people or or even a you know a, a publicity opportunity.
0: This is good because you've set up the dominoes so you can see the the um what's the what's the term I'm looking for here? You can see the landscape and go, all oh, right, if a fucks up or if A goes in a particular direction. It's going to hassle B, which exactly. will have a knock on the face with C and then a week before release for panicking, you know. Yeah, because you, you can see that from
1: Oh yeah, and and that, yeah. that happened all the time, right? Like it you know was a was a, a was a radio station getting a presents on a show going to, you know, which which the touring department might be able to do. Mhm is it going to screw up the chances of the promo department being able to get a competing station in the same market to play the song?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so yeah, where I mean, I think a good way to put it is that we're each department each individual department had a micro view. Mm-hmm. The product manager had the macro view.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, totally.
1: Um, and okay. so, you know, we were, we, we sort of had our, our, our hands in everything. And you mm-hmm. know, I mean, the idea was that we were there to facilitate. Yeah. Sure. You know, I mean, that, that was ultimately our goal was to do everything we could, um, whether, you know, through our own means or through the fact that, you know, we were the primary people once the a guy handed it off, primarily communicating with the managers um, to try to, you know, push through whatever our different department heads are requesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that was our job just to sort of be there to fill in and yeah. to, to, to keep the whole shit moving.
0: So at what point? Because we did skip a step, didn't we? Because you started out in marketing and then you move, migrate to product management. Well, no,
1: it's the same. It so so basically, <laughs> basically what happened was was Corey la- Corey left. Two
0: thousand three. The join I sanctuary.
1: Say, I want to say it was earlier, but maybe it was. I don't remember. If someone else said two thousand three, then I would.
0: I, I wouldn't. Say no. Well, we can consult the miracle of LinkedIn, can't we? <laughs> Not that it matters. It kind of does in this sort of weirdly critical period that we like to. Um... Oh, in no, 2001. Okay. He was there for three years. Okay. Night years, 2001, then went to Sanctuary.
2: Right.
3: So right. I wonder
0: if he went like, oh, man. Like, I wonder if he went before the sh- it all kicked off with like, Iowa and Silver Side up, or I wonder if he.
1: I want to say that he kicked both of them off and then left. I want to um, say that I, he, I, I,
0: if I was Rod Smallwood and I saw those two albums coming out from Roadrunner, I would be like, "Who's been? You know, who's been? <laughs> who's that?" Who then? Been doing that? Yeah, he's got to be like a mere peering over the Atlantic. Yeah, um, I mean,
1: I don't, I, I, I don't remember. I remember. Let's see. So, actually, so he, yeah, he left less than a year after I started, I believe, and it was yeah. early. You know what? He might have left before they came out because. Silver Side Up came out September 11th, right? Yes. And and um, I think that he left right like early in 2001 because I remember myself, Carl Severson, and Chris Masutka, who was the the web marketing guy yep. at the time. Corey had been, I think, promote either either he was promoted or he was he was getting an office. He used to have a big cubicle and he was getting an office. And we had bought him a, a stereo for his office as, like, a Christmas present. Cool. And he, like, never got to use it because he left, like, shortly thereafter. Right. So I want to say he left early in the year.
0: Oh, yeah, makes he- sense. Makes sense. But a Christmas present. But I'm
1: not 100% sure. I, it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, but, but... Um, Oh, so you're asking, so, so, so he left, Bob Johnson, who was in the sales department, mm-hmm. got moved over to be the head of marketing. Yeah. And because Bob's background was in sales and not marketing, and I had been doing marketing for, I don't know, maybe eight months. I was not a seasoned pro or anything, yep. but they moved, they bumped me up to a product manager.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I think he, he became director of marketing mm-hmm. and I became a product manager, just so that he wouldn't be handling every project. Yeah. So that's which when is, I started getting what, my Cor- own projects,
0: which is what Corey was doing. He was, yeah. he was he was getting all the shit from all angles from everything. Yeah, when- so
1: Corey so, so Cory would handle everything and I was essentially the marketing assistant that I would, you know, he would he would give me marching orders and I would go make it happen.
0: You've got your slice of the pie off your off your trot.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So when when Bob came in, um I still assisted on sort of the day-to-day of some of the bigger stuff mm-hmm. um but then started getting my own arcs.
0: before we go on to that mm-hmm. let's extrapolate on something you said earlier about those two cory and bob had like they had like a, a profound effect on how this transition between world between late 90s and early 2000s happened here i'm, I'm happy to accept i'm not likely going to get to speak to them, so i'm now just going to like ask their mates <laughs> what, <laughs> why do people say i don't know enough about them to say to make an assessment i know obviously the legacy of what they went on to do is like it's incredibly profound in the metal management and administrative sort of world right but whenever to so, so, get over them everyone's everyone like had a lot of reverence for them and i don't I, I understand why but i need to know some more details about this period
1: so so, so i'll put it this way like I, you know i feel that um a lot of the people who you've spoken to for this thus far are sort of luminaries in, in Roadrunner lore, right? Um, <laughs> I'm a little like, bit more of a bit player. Road, Roadrunner lore,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> I've got to bring it into like fucking, right, this is like the Elder Scrolls terminology <laughs> of this fucking project. So it's fine, I'm, I'm in.
1: <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that, that the two of them, you know, it's hard to say. So Corey, well, here, let me say this: I think Roadrunner. One of the things that made it so great was that uh, they really did have some exceptional people, and I don't know if that is if that is um, dumb luck
2: mm-hmm.
1: or you know they they. Jonas or whoever was doing the hiring had an extremely keen eye. Um, I mean, some people, you have people like Carl, who you spoke to. Yeah. Um, you have people like Mark Shapiro. I don't know if you've had a chance
0: to speak to him, but. Is, it's interesting. It's so interesting. There's some people who I've just never heard of. And then. One well, one person mentions them. That's the name I hear for the next like three weeks. So Mark isn't a name I come across until like three weeks ago. Now well, everyone... I know that
1: Jamie obviously, Jamie was really close with Mark, and I know Austin spoke about Mark as well, because yeah. um, he was, you know, Mark was Austin's predecessor. Um, just I mean, th- there were just some people who were, who were just really really good at what they did, mm. and 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 also able to be really good people, which is not always easy, right? Like, a lot of people are really good at what they do. Yeah. Or or they're nice people. Um, I feel that that Corey was one of those guys who was, I mean, just exceptional about what he did and also how he did it. Like, he had great instincts. Mm -hmm. He also had... Great people skills. He was not a pushover by any means, but but he had a way of getting things done without ever having to raise his voice. Right. Um, I don't think I think he was one of those lead by example people mm-hmm. where you didn't feel that he would ever ask something of you that he wouldn't do himself. Okay. I'm, um, trying,
0: to, I'm trying to think of words to try to like help articulate this. It seems like he's delivery minded, but omnidirectional. Like he'll make yeah. It seems like one is getting the job done, but he's doing it in a way where it's not a a unilateral pushing things forward. Everyone's benefiting from him being in that room.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And 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 he and and also obviously, I mean, his success where he is now shows just the vision that he had. Yeah. I mean, he had a vision for Slipknot as their product manager that he's continued on as their manager to just you know unprecedented success. Sure. Um, yeah. that didn't just start when he became their manager. Yeah. That yeah. started when he first heard and saw them which is before I met him, but clearly he had a vision for what this band could be. Yeah. That far exceeded what even probably a lot of people at Roadrunner thought it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that 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 having that that combination of of vision and ability and communication skills um he really he, he was just a really good leader a solid leader right um and and you know bob had big shoes to fill when he when Corey left mm-hmm. um, and, I mean, in the end, I think, you know, his, the success of the artist that he worked with sort of speaks for itself, right? Yeah. You know, he he was able to, I mean, he guided Nickelback through their, you know, two or three most successful albums. Um, and, you know, it was a, a, let's say a fortuitous situation that Bob and Corey were were, were great friends, mm-hmm. and consequently, I think the working relationship that they were able to have on Slipknot benefited Slipknot. Right, like so. you know, it was that their manager and the person in charge of their project at the label worked hand in hand really well, and yeah. so um, and and Bob was uh, immensely likable guy.
2: Right, we're so. Out.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, um, you know, I think that those, you know, those two definitely were sort of instrumental in the success that happened in, in in the period that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, this is this is it. I think it paints a bit more of a picture. I think I'm getting some caricatures now. So thank you. <laughs> so tell me about the, the, your first projects then. So the- <laughs> my
1: first projects were my first one ever was Kill Switch Engage. No way. Which, was fantastic because i absolutely love kill switch engage um but i did kill switch i did devil driver i had 36 crazy fists El nino spine shank mm. um and then i even you know every once in a while they throw me a bone with an established artist i got to do cradle of filth um, i got to do machine head when they came back to the label which was like a dream come true for me because i played machine head when i was a college radio dj and one of the highlights of my time at Roadrunner was, strangely, when when Rob Flynn flew in unannounced to ask to be let go from his from the label, and I was the one who greeted him at the elevator. I was like, I mean, Rob Flynn, holy shit! And then, <laughs> and then of course, everything that happened, I was like, oh, I may never meet Rob Flynn again. So <laughs> it was good that it happened. Um, but then I then I got to product manage them, which was fantastic. Um, so you know, I was given. I was, give, I was basically in charge of developing artists. So I had, you know, the agony scene um, and uh, still remains. Yeah. I have a so, question about
0: the agony scene. Yeah. Did they, fuck, man. Did they have, obviously as, as part of your role of, of developing these baby bands, um, well, let's call them baby bands, not to be patronizing because I know sometimes- no, They'll have to be
1: called them at the label. So, yes. okay.
0: Um, you'll have had to see them live a lot now i have this memory of a band that had an intro track uh, i think i must have seen it like Leeds cockpit but the entire band would face the ramps and then when it kicked into the song, they'd just do 180 degree and just jump around like it was a curtain drop it was and i have it in my i remember thinking i mean i must have been 16 and i was just like what the fuck are they doing but i think it was the agony hey, what you got right yeah <laughs> I think that was the agony scene. I don't know if you can remember if that that was like maybe something that maybe they just did my mind. I mean
1: I don't remember them having done it, but I I I it certainly wouldn't
0: surprise me to find out that it was. I can't think of any other example of anything like that happening. Never mind in metal, but in show business. Maybe <laughs> like, like a blue man group or something. It, it was just so strange. Just it's really like, we're <laughs> So why are they just stood? Are they just stood staring intently at their arms? and then it was like dun dun. Ah, <laughs> oh, it was weird. Anyway, no, was, yeah. So what year? What year did you get these projects in? Um, what's this? this the cutoff time when you started? The I want to
1: say I probably started getting my own projects maybe around two thousand two. Right. I had <laughs> I had debut for Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. I had El Nino's second album. I had Spine Shanks second album. I had Chimera from the beginning, from their debut. Oh, nice! Um, Devil Driver first, Thirty Six Crazy Fist first. So,
0: did El Nino specifically request not to be released the week after um, Silver Side Up this time? <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> Please don't put us up at radio against them again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's so cool though because. That cohort of bands, that specific cohort of bands, was the other side of the fork because you had Nickelback and Slimdar doing AAA things. And then you had this still litany of, um, of, of developing metal and what some would be regarded as what we then call metalcore which is now something different, sometimes <laughs> referred to it as like new wave of American metal. And it goes left and right. We don't know what the fuck it is. Whatever the terminology is today. Yeah, yeah. But this is still like the breeding ground for what Roadrunner is known for, which is like shit that's on the fringe. Right? Yeah, I mean,
1: and, and also, I mean, I had, I had, um, I had obituary. Ah, oh, yeah, cool. Um, I can't remember the name of the album, though.
0: Not Frozen in Time.
1: Yes, Frozen in Time. Isn't that oh. like a frozen at like dinosaur or serpent or something on the cover?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a glacier. And then there's like a serpent, so sort of like the skeleton was yeah. surfing itself, sort of sneaking. Yeah, so in I the- had
1: that. I had Deicide's last record for Roadrunner.
0: You had, you, you had Scott Burns' last record for Batem. <laughs> Scott Burns, yeah. like that was all, his last produced record, was Frozen in Time. Yeah, yeah. I
1: had Trivium too. Um, so, yeah, so I had, you know, I had a good mix um, of sort of classic. Mm. Uh, I had Sepultura's first post-Max album, The uh,
0: Nation. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I was, I was thinking for some reason I was like, Soulfly's first put What? No, no, no. no Soulfly.
1: Bob did Soulfly because right. Max was Max.
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah, so. So can um, you attest to the Rose story, Roe Coley's story about his dad um, reading that verse? is like an indian verse or something on one of the tracks
1: i i, I can neither I confirm nor deny <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, um, shall i google ah no it's all right you just go back to the raw episode it's it's a good story um, so let's let's think about this this obviously your role as product manager you, we have got this many life cycles of many things who's who's regarded as the golden egg then is it devil driver because of all of these, the,
1: of the artists that I was working with,
0: yeah, in this sort of like in this period, because between sort of like two thousand two, two thousand five, there's no straight winners. Now that we look back at it, there's like there's some clear fucking winners. In the fact, that there's yeah. there's no losers for sure of that lineup, but there's some which are like obviously have stood the test of time and have done really amazing things, and some of them have either fallen off or weren't quite as successful. Um, but when you think of those the first as I'm coming out as they're coming out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Where's my money going? Because it isn't with trivium. Not in gonna say
1: so I could tell you where the money went, which isn't necessarily that that everyone at the label believed that these were the bands that were going to make it. Mm. But I could tell you that the money went to Il Nino and Chick. Really? Well they were both they were both bands that, that had radio campaigns
0: sure okay so
1: when you're talking about going to radio you're talking about a six-figure investment
0: fuck okay oh it it wasn't it wasn't that they had the most viable radio applicability it's that they had they had already the invested they had had the infrastructure and a campaign already there
1: well no it it was that we felt that they had that that they had radio socks
0: right okay got you
1: and so and so consequently that's worked into the budget uh-huh. Uh, so so I mean I think that but but if you take out if you take those two out, right? because because radio just demands exorbitant spending.
2: Yeah, it, if, if yeah you
1: look at the the rest of the the roster, I think the feeling was, yes, devil driver because Des had a fa- existing fan base. Yeah, but there was definitely some question as to whether, that fan base was going to be hip to his much heavier sound and, yes. and whether the metal fans at large would embrace Des of the makeup wearing and the goth scene as Des the reinvented metalhead. Yeah. Which I think they did. And I think the, the album absolutely um, justified that they were the real deal. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that, the other bands that were really that we had high hopes for were Killswitch, um, Chimera. Those are probably the and and sorry and trivia.
0: So was My Last Serenade not regarded, or was it not? Didn't have a, a radio campaign around it?
1: It did not. So it was. I mean, it was the song that got Lonko and the radio department to very excited about the prospect of somewhere down the road, Killswitch doing something that could merit a radio campaign. Right. Um, but the verses were far too screamy
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. for commercial
1: radio. But I mean, I mean, the core, I mean, God, that band, I mean, their choruses are are, are, are saccharine. I mean, they're, 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 they're so catchy. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that definitely planted the seed of, you know, if if they can deliver a song without a screamed verse, mm. we have something. Mm.
3: Um,
1: Trivium, I think, was sort of the same thing. Like, wow, the, I mean, you know, obviously, the de- their debut for Roadrunner definitely had shades of classic, you know, uh, Master of Puppets era Metallica. Yeah, sure. And I think that the feeling was was well, look what Metallica had done. So, you know somewhere in this, I mean, you know, I think when I met Matt Heafy, he was 18 years old, mm. um, yeah. you know, that, that somewhere two or three albums down the road when he's really still just in his prime, they were going to be big. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then with Chimera, I mean, I think that particularly with the impossibility of reason, Yep. um, you know, we felt that just there were anthems, you know, pure hatred was, was just, you know, I mean, there were just things about it that seemed like they would resonate with the, with the diehard metal crowd.
0: Were there any, knowing that you've got the macro view, mm-hmm. are there any, like, massive issues that happened on that roster? Is there, any, is there anything where it was like, no, we've got, the, we've got the creative angle for this band completely wrong? Like, for example, like, did it take any a particular migration of mindsets to get the Devil Driver aesthetic to be so departed from Coal Chamber? And, like, I guess for Ascendancy, that that album art is, like, something... It's off the beaten path for the time, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, was, I, yeah.
1: I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I remember some some artists... I mean, look, Killswitch is easy to, to think of when it came to the art because Mike D did all the artwork. Yeah. So 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 we knew that. Um Devil Driver Des had that symbol that Live. he knew that he wanted. Um and so we knew what to work off with off, off of with that. I remember Kamara had a friend, I want to say it was either Todd Bell or Garrett Zunt who sort of had the ideas for their artwork for them. Right. Um so 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 they you know they definitely came in with pain loaded. Exactly. And I want to say that that trivium, that painting for Ascendancy was, I don't remember particularly, but I want to say that it came from the band. Mm. Like it was, it was someone that the band knew. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I think that with, with particularly, you know, what we're, calling the baby bands, the bands I work with, you know, image. I mean, these guys were metalheads, right? They weren't Mm. trying to transcend, at least in their, in their earlier stages, they weren't trying to transcend to the mainstream and they were metalheads. So their image was,
2: Mm. was
1: genuine, right? Like they weren't trying, it wasn't tough to get them to, to try to project something because this is, I mean, it was their lives. They dedicated their lives to being, in heavy metal bands yeah they probably looked like metalheads you know like mm-hmm. it wasn't like you need to stop looking like an accountant although i did once get in trouble because justin the drummer for for kill switch
2: mm-hmm.
1: when he started like he was totally clean cut and i was like he looks like he's in a gap act <laughs> <laughs> he, he he did not like that <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, so, so I don't think it ever really arose. There's only one there's only one band that I recall and it wasn't one of my bands that there was an issue or there was a disconnect between the image they wanted to project and the music mm. they made. Um and out of fairness to that band, I will not
0: yeah, fair enough. You
1: know, call them out, but 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 they eventually came around to okay, maybe this isn't the image that that we should really be trying to project. It's not who we are.
0: I think that, that question comes from like, again, it's having lived through it and we all have an idea of what that time, oh, it was new Metal, it was this, it was Return of the Riff and all this stuff. It's easy to say that now, but when you're trying to play the guessing game of what's going to resonate with a customer, which is your job to sort of like administrate and, and deliver to a customer, to, to the forward-facing public, it's, I'd, I'd love to sort of like know, whoa, whoa. Yeah, make it orange, My If he says make it orange, we'll just make it fucking orange. We don't actually know. Right. <laughs> Blue's in, according to Killswitch, but fuck it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I mean, look, you know, it's it's. I mean, I think, at least my my now thirty years in various aspects of the music business have led me to believe that, you know, it's it's equal parts an art and a science, right? I mean, there 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 are certain things. That you need, there are certain, you know, boxes you need to check off to successfully set up a campaign. Yeah. Um, And then there's a lot of it that's just, we think this will work with this project, you know, and that this is, this this feels right. Yeah. Um, But, but again, I think, you know when when you're dealing with the the type of artists that that i was responsible for at the label which were the more touring artists rather than radio artists sure i mean you know to 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 dedicate your life to trying to be in a band um i just feel like no one's gonna know how to project an image of of being true metal better than a guy who is in a a band like you know like they are they're what everyone copies right Mm -hmm. I mean occasionally a band does just get it completely wrong and you know people are like whoa what was with that but I think by and large you know uh, going with with a band's instinct more often than not is safe at, at the level of band that I was dealing with. I think when you're dealing with a larger band and you're trying to reach a larger audience, maybe more consideration has to be given into what you're projecting.
0: I guess as well, when you know you've got a radio, a radio campaign on one particular artist and you've got baby band, wishes and perhaps on, not quite as developed, it's incumbent on yourself to go, all right, well, here's where we go with the radio artist. We know we can probably get a headline tour on like a 200 capacity East coast rum, And we can build like that with the other ones. We just need to hit them till they work. So send Trivium onto to OzFest, send Devil Driver supporting Lamb of God, or whatever, you know, however all that worked. I guess that's that's how you cultivate the seeds, really, at that level. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, look, our, our touring department, which was, you know, headed by
0: Harlan, um,
1: I mean, did a did a, just an amazing job of getting these bands out on tours that helped really um, either develop or solidify a reputation. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, not every band can go out with Slayer <laughs> as much as, as much as, you know, everyone wants to, not every band can. Mm. Um, cause you know, and, and so, you know, sometimes they were tasked with, with really finding, you know, finding opportunities for bands that had very small followings
0: or creating them. Right. Cause this is like the road rage tour era.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The road mm. runner road rage tour, which, you know, we, 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 and, and that was done specifically because we felt that we had a really strong stable of these smaller artists and, um, you know, if we were going to, we, we would have spent less supporting each band on an individual yeah. first of five bill yeah. than we could if we took it all together and said, you know, we'll we'll put Machine Head out there, we'll put Chimera and Trivium, and I think it was supposed to be Three Inches of Blood, but I think they dropped off at the last minute, if I recall correctly.
0: We had them in Europe. I know we had Trivium, Three Inches of Blood. Um still remains i can't remember i know i know three inches of blood made it over here because I remember march march 2005 was road rage and then september was trivium's headlining tour because that's when ascendancy broke through over here
1: through over there
0: yeah 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 so what was road rage was that harlan's brainchild then or was that just a coming together of different products going hey there's a potential opportunity here
1: yeah, I think, you know, I think Roadrunner had always liked the idea of touring their bands together. I mean, it mm. it kind of made sense from a lot of different angles that, you know, publicity wise, you can get the same press out- outlets to cover all your artists mm. and you can use a bigger one to make sure you get coverage for the smaller ones. Yeah. Um, from a marketing spend-wise, you know, uh, angle, it made sense because you weren't you weren't sending out to support five different tours. You weren't spending mm. to support five different tours. You're supporting five bands on one tour. Um, from an advertising angle, it made sense. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it was it was really the label as a whole really liked that idea, um, and I think it also was a great. Sort of establishing piece for the label, right? Saying like, "Look at you know all these up and coming bands we have, and don't forget, there's still Machine Head."
0: This now, is the thing I'm just the clocks on to. So the Black Crusade, bit, I think it was after your time, but it was, it was Machine Head, Trivium, Dragon Force. Fuck, who else was the? I think maybe In Flames and maybe Arch Enemy, but it was a, a predominantly roadrunner. Bill, and you've just highlighted the the advantages of a roadrunner heavy bill, especially when at that point when all those bands were heavy hitters. Yeah, it's not it's no longer like low investment, high yield across four different acts in, on a, on an east coast tour. It's like no, there's an arena tour with all roadrunner breakthrough acts, right? It's different things. Right. But I wonder, I wonder if it was no. It's a, it's a question for Rob Flynn really to say. Was it devised by you as Black Crusade or was it devised by you but not named Road Rage? Because maybe maybe we've moved on to that point where putting the company name on a tour isn't as cool, whereas calling it the Black Crusade is a lot cooler, you know, maybe Well that
1: was A, that's a very cool name. Yes. And B, I mean, you know, you had Machine Head who have always been a massive draw Mm. outside of the US. Yep. Um, and okay. Trivium, who were, you know, press darlings, certainly, and had blown up in Europe before they blew up here. I mean, it it, it certainly made sense. You didn't need the Roadrunner name, I think, to, to draw people because yeah. you had two bona fide co-headliners yeah. that could draw on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, you know, we had Machine Head as a headliner, but Machine Head was headlining, you know, thousand cap places in the U S mm. um, and, and these other bands, you know, could draw a few hundred here and there. So it was definitely advantageous to, I think, brand it.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, i got, it. like we said, Machine Head Trivium, Dragon Force, Arch Enemy, plus special guests, who I'm guessing must've been an inflamed Sometimes... type, must've, have, must've have been. Even though I was, I was sure, I was sure that it was- Roadrunner might have- yeah, Fall. That was it. Shadows oh, okay. fucking fall.
1: And when, was Roadrunner licensing either Arch Enemy or Shadows Fall at the time?
0: I think um I think Shadows Fall have a strong connection. I need to I need to look into that. I know Arch Enemy was the anomaly. I think Century, was, They were Century Media. Yeah, yeah. I think um Shadows Fall. I think they had one that was licensed out on Roadrunner, but no, that's yeah, interesting. Now these are the things I like about doing this podcast because I come up with like a little. Like a theory, let's call it a theory, like oh, maybe they rename the Black Crusade because Rodríguez Rage Tour isn't fucking cool. And then fucking like Monty or Dougle emailed me going, No, don't abandon that rabbit hole, Saxton, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so let's before we move on to Rodríguez United, can we articulate? Because you mentioned something about obviously machine wasn't as quite as big in the US as it was outside. So that second run, the uh, through the ashes and into the blackening um, uh-huh. uh, that's shitting lightning. Monty's words, not mine, but I, I do. I do agree. Um, was it like that in the U S because you, yeah. you, as a fan for you, you must've been like fucking yes. We're back lads.
1: Oh yeah. It was, I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, it was a thrill for me both as a fan and, and as a band's product manager. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the band's profile, um, their reputation. I mean, I, it just felt like the man was finally getting what they were due. They'd always been an amazing live band. Yeah. They'd put out great albums. Um, you know, they had always been willing to try something new, mm-hmm. sometimes to their detriment, at least as far as how the how the public received it. Um But I think that, you know, having gone through what they went through uh, and I listened to, you know, your interview with Rob, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they came back and they were I mean, they just to put those two albums out one after the other. I mean, most bands would kill to have, you know, half a good album (laughs) in their career. You know, they put out two classics. So so it press wise. Their profile absolutely exploded. Mm. Um, they could definitely, um, you know, their 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 cap shows definitely increased. Yeah, um, which is why you know now they can afford to do an evening with Machine Head, and it's mm-hmm. just then, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely. Um, I,
0: it definitely increased their exposure, and of course, it got over here, as in like, it seems to be like both sides of the Atlantic are now on on the train, as opposed to yeah. burn my eyes when it was like supporting Slayer, fucking smashing it, and then doing a hundred cap build um, venues in the US. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. A lot can, so a lot can was... change
0: in ten years. Yeah,
1: yeah. It was, it was it was so great to you know see them get get the recognition I always thought they deserved. So it was it was. It was Really, a cool experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. How did you, in, in your capacity as a product manager, were you dealing with Kill Switch at this point? Yeah. So when uh, when Jesse leaves, are you like, fuck? How yeah, is that's I exactly
1: what I was like. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck, are we gonna do?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but you know, look, one thing, you know, one thing that Roadrunner did a, a, a very good job of, of was making it clear that. A handles A and and marketing does their thing. Um, there were, you know, there were the Young Turks meetings where we were given, you know, some say.
0: Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know why I got laugh at that. I was thinking so. I don't know who came up with the idea of the Young Turks, but like positioning it as like in a in a historical revol- revolutionary context just screams Jonas or Doug.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure or who who came up with it, but you know it it was it was one of those places where we were allowed free reign to speak um and we had you know we had great you know it wasn't like i mean the anr offices were kind of separate from us they were mm. off in the back um but i mean we had great relationships with the anr guys we talked to them all the time they'd have us they you know have us come in and listen to music and sure. whatever um so it wasn't that they weren't interested in our opinions but uh, Ultimately when something like a lead singer leaving a band happens, it wasn't anything that I was gonna solve.
2: <laughs> you yeah. know yeah. it was
1: it was I love this band where you know the I, I hope we can get more than one tour, but it's all we're gonna get right now and mm. you know let's see what happens. Um, and then yeah. of course, you know how it happened.
0: I, I guess I guess the question is more. When a singer leaves a band in that, especially a prolific band like that, does it, what stops, what stops? Do you see everything stop? stops? <laughs> Do you ha- so everything. you have to, apart from, unless obviously touring is its own thing. And if you can find someone to fill in, you find someone to fill in. It's done on a very local level, mm-hmm. but I suppose if it's something like from an artist development perspective and there's a strategy and there's an idea of where this band's going to go, then you have to sort of pump the brakes and go, we don't know what's going to happen now because the dynamics shifted and the band that we thought was a baby band uh, that could grow into a live stalwart is now just a baby band again, because we don't know what they could be because there's no, right. is mi- one key ingredient is missing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, also keep in mind, they also lost their drummer.
2: Mm. Like Like
1: everyone, obviously like, you know, it's, it's funny, um, you know. Carl's band has that song "Nobody Takes Pictures of the Drummer." Like everyone always talks about about um, Jesse leaving. You know, it's like Tom was their drummer. Yeah, <laughs> he left. <laughs> Nobody seemed to care much. Um, but I mean, you know, it was it was a matter of. I mean, certainly, you know. Look, album releases are are front loaded, right? We mm-hmm. we put all our marketing into making. You know, creating awareness around release. So yeah. we had made the the last serenade video, and that was getting its play in metal in metal world. Mm-hmm. Um, we had run our advertising campaign. They were they were, had already been, I think, probably number one at metal radio. Um, so that campaign was essentially over. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really a matter, and they had done that first tour with I think it was Soil Work and Hypocrisy. Mm-hmm um and so it was a you know it it was a situation where there probably wasn't going to be a lot more invested in the band on this project right other than you know if they had gotten another tour there might have been some tour support but they were a band that was great about tour support they owned their own van they toured in it so they didn't ask for a lot of money mm-hmm. um you know, there would have been some POP, you know, some posters that we would have sent out and stuff like that. So it wasn't one of those things where we're like, oh, my God, we're, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in the hole. It right. was we we got a good, you know, there the, a good launch with them and we could afford to sort of pause and see what happened next because we weren't in the middle of a, of a you know, multi hundred thousand dollar campaign.
2: Right. Which is
1: nice, which is the advantage of being a product manager of Baby Ben, So when something goes wrong, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to stop that train.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Very cool. I think I asked that to um Mike Gitter about um, how Michael Graves left the Misfits. He's like, well, you know, as long as Jerry's there and Doyle's there, <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Better example, I guess. Yeah.
1: yeah i mean look i mean adam you know adam is the i mean i I think because he's the 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 showy you know the sort of the he's got the blonde hair and he Mm -hmm. produces their music and he doesn't look like a metalhead like people think of adam but i mean that band is truly a band i mean and and, um yeah i mean they, they they just got fortunate right i mean to to lose Jesse, to get Howard, to lose Howard and get Jesse back. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes things work out.
0: I kind of I consider these times right. I consider 2018 onwards as the post Last Jedi world where we realize that no one's opinions mean fucking anything, right? <laughs> Similarly, I believe we live in a post Jesse and Howard world where band disputes are like. Let's say bands members slagging each other off in the press, like years after certain disputes. Those days are now over, thanks to those two two guys. Because the so Members of bad wolves. Yeah, that, yeah There's a point, actually. Yeah.
1: I, Which the, is funny because John Buckland, you know, from Devil Driver, could not be nicer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ended up in that horrible position,
2: but yeah, yeah. You
1: know, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Howard. I, every day now, I see you know, Howard and Jesse from their current tour, you know, on Blabbermouth, you know, playing together, which is great, which, which actually dovetails nicely into Roadrunner United, because that's the first time the two of them shared the stage that we saw.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right, so let's start. Crazy. Let's start. Is there any, is there anything actually from this period? Can I can find the, again, the product manager role is underrepresented on this, in this project at the minute. Is there any it's other-
1: not sexy. Yeah. it's not
0: a sexy I, thing it's, but, I, but it's interesting it's really interesting like if people sort of think as we sort of unpick the, the nature of a record label and understanding that no there's not a bunch of fat blokes in cigars in an ivory tower throwing shit at bands there's like a, there's a whole like mechanical there's a lot of cogs in the system which are trying to optimize um the output of these bands not necessarily for profit but to propagate more metal because yes. that's the objective. Don't tell Monty Connor that he's trying to make money because he, he's trying to make more metal, right? right? So if we, the more we learn about that, the better we, the better suited we are to delivering that in the next 50 odd years. And we have to ask the difficult questions, which is when Michael Graves leaves Misfits, are you having a bad day? And you have to ask the dumb questions to get the answers, right? Right. And so and product management is part of that process because you need someone to coordinate those bits but someone's got to make the donuts right that's it (laughs) i'm I'm romanticizing perhaps maybe too much um but you know it's it's how the sausage is made man but so as we as we leave that behind we talk about roger and united which obviously as we said earlier is kind of like it doesn't it wasn't precedented is there anything from this this product management era from let's let's call it early 2005 backwards. Is there any stories or sort of anecdotes or observations you want to make and share before we forget?
1: Um, you know, I have a, a, I have a long history of putting my foot in my mouth. So I'm going to refrain.
0: Oh, come on. <laughs> I'll let it out if you want.
1: Um, you know, um,
0: you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I
1: just come away with, you know I mean? I, I, I have, weird things i mean so so i remember i was one of the few people in the office who was completely sober right i, I was c- totally clean you in case um and one day clown was coming to town and clown needed pot manaculture and yeah and nobody nobody like everyone at that label not everyone but there are a lot of pot smokers there and nobody could get Clown His Pot. <laughs> I ended up having to get Clown His Pot. Like I had friends, you know, outside of the office who smoked. And I remember I had to go to Brooklyn. So we're in, you know, midtown, not lower, you know, lower midtown Manhattan. I had to go to Brooklyn to go get weed. Then I had to go up to like 72nd. Clown was at dinner or it was at lunch with Jonas and Case across the street from Carnegie Hall. <laughs> and and I had to, like, walk in there and deliver him a bag of weed. And it was just, to me, like, the most surreal way to spend a day, especially as, like, someone who doesn't smoke pot anymore.
0: Someone saw your job description as product manager and thought, I need some products.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I was like, so so you're the guy that gets people weed now. Um <laughs> You know, I mean, there's obviously, you know, there's the Roadrunner holiday parties, which oh, you know nice. are, are, yeah. are famous, and I probably remember more about them than most people do because I didn't get drunk. Mm. Um, but no, I don't have any like crazy stories. I mean, I guess when it's, when it's, it's the life that you're living at the time. It doesn't seem that weird.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now that definitely.
1: I'm, you know, twenty five years removed from it,
0: <laughs> I don't know. It's, I like talking about the the Christmas parties though, because sometimes it's usually no one has like a long sustained story about one insane night. It's always like this, uh, and something happened, and this. I, I feel like sometimes when I ask the question about the Christmas parties, it becomes quite. It's a sacred thing that you'll never understand, Jim. There's no point asking. It's just like this. It's behind like this—an emotional vault door for everyone.
3: <laughs> was, let
0: let everyone amazing. have their, let everyone have their sacred memories and stop trying to pry in.
1: <laughs> it, was, it was pretty. I mean, I, I mean, I remember especially the year that, that Jerry Cantrell came, and in a, in a, in a world, you know, I mean, we worked in a world full of rock stars. Mm. And still, Jerry Cantrell was the rock star of rock stars.
2: Joe.
1: Um, And actually, that actually reminds me of something. So I took a personal vacation over to Europe. I want to say maybe 05, 06. I went to the UK for a couple days, and then I went to stay with a friend in in Paris. Then on my way back... um, I went back to London and Camara, I want to say it was Camara, Spineshank, and Il Niño were playing together. Mm-hmm. And there's a bar that you're probably familiar with that was like a it's like a hole in the wall right around the corner from one of the one of the venues. It's since closed, but apparently everyone knew about it. And all the roadrunner staff used to go there. Crowbar. Maybe it was crowbar. Was it really, it was really small?
0: I, I never went, but I know I understand. It's like that's like the place.
1: Okay, so maybe maybe that was the place, but after the show, um, you know, I went with the band to so let's let's say it's a crowbar, and and Dave Grohl sauntered in. <laughs> sauntered. And again, like like it was such a weird night because you know I feel like I've traveled to another continent and I'm hanging around with bands like this is. Like, I couldn't believe it was my life that, like, I'm, I'm in Europe and I'm hanging out with bands I just happen to be friends with who just happen to play to, you know, seven or 800 people. I thought that was amazing. And, you know, I was just like, oh, this is so cool. And then just Dave Grohl walks in and suddenly every band I was with became like I was with the bands I was with. They're just like, stay Dave fucking Grohl. Like, it was just, it was very <laughs> surreal and, and a very sort of cool opportunity, Yeah, um, you know, to find yourself in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Not fair let's let's jump into uh, the old road running the united then knowing that this is a right. rabbit hole that we probably can't clamber out of. So what how does it how does it come to your world then because we know there's a, a lot of coordination required. Yeah. We know so Mark Palmer's idea primarily and then Montessori carried uh, and uh, adapted it to you know be what it was.
1: Right. Mm. So yeah, I mean, look, it was yeah, it, it went from Mark to Monty, and, and Monty pitched it to us, and you know, and we were we were sort of charged with a making sense of it, and um, b naming it, right. <laughs> C giving it an image, um, you know, and then once we did all that, we had to sort of make this concept like digestible to people outside of those of us in the offices. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: So in in all honesty, I inherited the project about halfway through. Okay. Basically, um, Bob Johnson had been handling it, but I believe maybe it was, you know, they were in the midst of either setting up both volume three from Slipknot, and um, the long road, or sure. maybe even the follow-up to the long road from Nickelback. So all he was spread right really reasons. thin. Yeah. yeah That's
0: 2004-2005. Right yeah, yeah, that, that would be that. That yeah.
1: So, so he was really spread thin, and I think that it just came to the point where they're like, let's give this to Matt. It can be his number one priority it needs to it needs to take some shape at this point mm-hmm. and, and and he just didn't have the time to commit to it um, so it was it was a little bit of a weird situation because it probably should have been further along than it was in the marketing imaging
0: right okay
1: process than it then than it was um, for something that probably needed more
0: marketing, and a cohesive messaging. Can I paint a picture then? Can I pay a picture? So when it, when it arrives at you, you've probably got Dino and a load of a load of songs coming in because I know where he was at that time. He had like a, because he was out of Fear Factory, but he was still doing music and he was submitting things to Monty. So there's probably that happening. You've probably got Rob Flynn sort of on the fence about doing it or not. You haven't got Matt Hafer yet because that doesn't happen until much later in the process. A surprisingly late point in the process. And then presumably you might have Joey, but you haven't got the Manchester United inspired imagery. Right. Yet. You haven't got Monty doing every interview. You've probably got a release date, but you haven't got. I'm trying to paint a picture of what the position of this sort of thing was.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I mean, you're, you know, you're looking at it very much from more of a ANR uh, AR standpoint. Right, okay. Um, whereas I'm, you know, I'm sort of challenged with looking at it from a marketing standpoint.
2: Mm. Um,
1: I mean, to to an extent, and I know this this sounds horrible to say and and, and and you know, take it within the context, the music itself didn't matter that much to me at the time. Whether I had heard it or not, yeah, um, the the project was coming out. And it was going to, it was going to sink or swim on the merits of our ability to communicate what that project actually was. And part of that was that, you know, I I think we could all feel confident that when you're dealing with those four particular songwriters,
0: mm.
1: you weren't going to end up with a pile of shit.
0: Like, yeah, sure. You know,
1: um, you know I. I
0: from your perspective, I mean, it doesn't matter about Neil Armstrong taking a driver to the moon. You just get him to the moon. And if you can make the golf's all right, play golf. Right. right, right. Yeah.
1: If, he, if he hits that hole in one, it's it's great. Don't yeah, I mean, I just get
0: him there alive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we were dealing with so many artists and so many styles of music and, and, and so many artists, I think you know ultimately you know having listened to the album obviously so many artists working outside of their comfort zones mm. in the style of music that maybe they were most co- closely associated with yeah um but but before any of that really was our challenge it was just how do you explain how do you first come up with a name come up with an image yeah and then find a way to simply let people know the breadth of this product mm-hmm. without having to, you know, sit them down and deliver <laughs> deliver a small presentation to them.
0: I guess this is the thing though, because if you go to any press outlet and go 56 artists, four main songwriters, and 12, well, 14 tracks on a record, they're going to go, all oh, right, we are the world. It's like, yeah. no, well, you no, know, it's something crazy. different. going
1: to think soundtrack, compilation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: I mean, I mean, you know, because that's what a lot of soundtracks were at the time, but but they were those, you know, most soundtracks were bands' B sides that mm. had been recorded and just didn't make an album. It's so like, no, this is all original music, yeah. and these are these are the primary composers from their respective bands, working without the sonic boundaries that their that their primary bands represented for them. I mean, this is their this is their freedom to write as they wish. Yeah, um, and I think credit to all of them that they all exercised writing that 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 exceeded the the sort of pre delineated parameters of what their band sounded like.
2: Yeah, it was absolutely. Fantastic
1: that it happened that way. Um, but yeah, when you take it when you take it to the press, all they do is think, "Oh, it's sixteen songs by sixteen different artists, sort of whatever." There are four artists who wrote them. But they're all different bands playing them. Mm. It's a soundtrack, you know. And you're just like, no, that's not what it is. Mm. Um. So yeah, it's you know, it, it was a challenge, which is why you know I I sent you that I literally was, was cleaning out our house and came upon that ad, yeah, um, that we had done because I was like, that's how we eventually decided the easiest way to break it down, like it's. Mm. This many captains, this many players, this many songs, yeah. this album. Um, and, and 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 in the end, I would say, ultimately, I think I, we, as a label, failed in marketing that project. It should have been much bigger than this. it was.
0: I was going to ask you like, what, what was the perception of its of his performance, because... Again, rose tinted glasses from my perspective, but a lot of people obviously revere the album and they look back on it like as a milestone and nothing like it has happened since, which is really cool. So why would you why do you just think it the, the numbers weren't there and it should have been more?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean it definitely, I mean, I think you know, we felt we felt that that we had, you know, Monty and everyone involved had put together something really special. Um mm. who, that you know um the the artistic value of it the quality of it i think exceeded what any of us anticipated
0: it had no and, right to be as good as it was
1: yeah yeah i mean it was just it, it was it was exceptional and there were so many good songs and it was such a testament to to particularly the four captains but to everyone involved you know who played i mean to just make songs that, that, that were well outside of their comfort zones. And they were all good songs in their own right.
0: Yeah. Peace Deal um, just came up with a gibberish language. It's just yeah. a bit, it still yeah. somehow works <laughs> really well. Yeah.
1: There, I mean, there was so much good stuff on there and and we failed to it just didn't resonate with the public.
0: Um what would you do differently then?
1: You know, look, there were so, so one of our big things at the time was we had a whole segment on, I want to say, oh, what was it called? I, I think it's now Pulse. Um, it wasn't MTV. It was, I'm drawing a blank. It was the other major video outlet here in the US. at the VH1? Time. No, not VH1, because they're owned by Viacom, uh, like MTV. It's, uh... uh if i can remember it i will i will it'll pop back in my head but cool. but we, we, we had a live performance we had music videos yeah um you know i mean maybe in retrospect we went we we, we we could have gone with a different video we could have gone with different i don't know i mean
0: the end is such a good song though i I, I, I... Maybe as a lead single because it was a softer song. Maybe perhaps wasn't a representative, but I don't. Again, I can't say because I liked. <laughs> I liked. It. I, I it loved just... it,
1: and I was I was one of the biggest proponents of that being the single. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I I will I will absolutely fall on the sword and say like, I thought that was the right single. Um, our promo guys didn't think it was the wrong single. I think, you know, there were only probably two or three songs that were really radio possible. And radio was going to be tough anyway, um, because of the fact that this wasn't a touring band. You know, no, no one was going to be able to own this band and it was going to pay dividends for this radio station for That's years a point. to come. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, so yeah. and we're about to get into 360 world. So touring is gonna to be a factor in how you measure the returns. Let's, let's do a pitch then. So obviously in the room, people are fighting. It's the, they're fighting for the dagger. They're fighting for No Way Out. And they're fighting for Blood and Flames. Those are your, those are your big ones. Those are your, uh, that, those are your radio ones or as close to radio as you're going to get, right? Well,
1: well, we're certainly not. The dagger was never going to be radio. It's way too long and way too heavy. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is my personal favorite song on the album, mm-hmm. but it was, it was never, never going to be a single. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the song with Keith Caputo it was a Joey song um, mm. it sounded like a Stone Temple Pilot song
0: yep I know exactly what you mean the name is escaping me because I'm a piece of shit
1: and I could literally sing it in my head but I don't remember what the chorus um, but that was that was thrown out there as a single and maybe maybe that would have been a better
0: Tired and lonely, Single. that's it, yeah.
1: Yeah, tired and lonely. Yeah. Um. I mean, look, you can always second guess, you know, decisions that you made. I mean, you know, some of it, some of it was, was that I think, you know, we, we, because it got, we, you know, it got switched from Bob to myself kind of late in the process. It was it got muddied, Like it didn't have a singular vision, right? Mm. Because it started off with what he was thinking of doing with it. And then it came to me, but I was already behind the eight ball and it's not to make excuses. Yeah. Just, it was, it was a very difficult project to make sense of that was further handicapped by being split over two people and maybe being rushed. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, in the end, I mean, commercially, it was it, it was a disappointment. I mean, I think you know we all love the album, we loved the we ended up liking the artwork and the name, mm. um, you know.
0: I don't like the name and the and the band name, but I'm like, well, I can't think of anything better. What yeah. else? Would you, what else could it possibly be? I'll, I mean, I'll, it,
1: they threw out Roadrunner All Stars, which sounded
0: too much like a sports team.
1: Yeah, it just didn't, you know.
0: All star session think, was, makes more sense, yeah.
1: I think at one point the all blacks was considered because you know that was cases
0: well, first, it was the it was the rice company the, the, and then the, it's the holding
1: company or whatever, yeah. and but it was also the rugby team and
0: yeah. That'll um, cool. Uh yeah. i I'll give yeah, you I mean, a- we
1: were, you know, we were we, we were basically, you know, we were like it's a team. Like the team, the team thing was what we were trying to get across, which is yeah. and the jersey and the emblem. You know, that was the idea. We actually made promotional soccer jerseys. Yeah, that said twenty five on the back and had the had the patch.
0: It's the most common picture I get sent from Xero employees. Oh, really? Yeah. Of people wearing those? No way! Just like they'll, they'll stumble across it in the house and they go, "Oh yeah, Jim might like this." Yeah, <laughs> I'll get. I'll give you a. a just so you don't feel so terrible about that thing that happened seventeen years ago, I'm gonna give you a microcosm of the cultural impact of that of that that record. So at school, once uh, a fight kicked off, and uh, being the entrepreneurs that we did, we filmed it. It wasn't a, it was just kids slapping each other. It wasn't a big fight, and uh, this is the days of <clears throat> days of YouTube before YouTube was bought by Google. So we, we filmed it and we put "I don't want to be a superhero" overlaid on it. Because it was just kind of like, was really pathetic to see these. Right, it did
1: not look like a manly fight.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was just like, funny, ironic, good song, two morons slapping each other, and then just sort of looking at each other awkwardly. It was really sort of stupid shit teenagers would um, would 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 have happened to them. But people were always like, ooh, what song is that? <laughs> it was like, oh, is is uh, United? No, oh, i never heard of it. Right, obviously, but these like not like normal people, not metal people whatsoever. Like, ah, oh, that's a great song. That so you can you can Michael Graves can be uh, take solace in, in the fact that he, <laughs> right. he 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 touched the hearts of like five British state farmers watching a shit fight on YouTube. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah. yeah. Did you have a hand in the um, in the show?
1: I did. Yes. I mean. And that's why I had said, you know, uh, you know, Harlan is definitely the one to talk to with the show because, you know, he, he dealt with all the logistics of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I had the hand in the marketing of the show and I was sort of, um, I took, you know, I took the bands, I took the, the, the Keith Caputo fronted band to some press sessions, um, I checked in on all the bands during their rehearsals because they were all sort of spread out around town. And so I was just sort of checking in with everyone to make sure, you know, that everything was going okay. Um, and, uh, And yeah, just night of the show, I just sort of made sure that everything went off the way it was supposed to go off. Again, Harlan dealt with the the show on stage, the lights and everything like that, I was yeah. more in charge of the larger, just the event as a whole.
0: So you, are you still not drinking at this point?
1: Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't had a drink since 1995. <laughs> and I'm still not drinking to this point, even though I have a child. <laughs> so, so I don't think I'm going to start. If that didn't make me start, I'm just not starting.
0: Well, you haven't had a drink since once upon the cross. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so, yeah, I, I was completely sober that night. And I, I saw some very... I mean, the show was unbelievable. Um, I will say that I fought very, very hard to have that show filmed.
3: Right. Um,
1: originally, like, we, MTV, had been interested in filming it for a Headbangers Ball episode. Sure. And, um, and then... I also thought we should just film it for a DVD, but the feeling was that, you know, these artists were essentially doing this for free and that we shouldn't be earning money off of it.
0: Right, okay.
1: Ironically, of course, a few years after I I was like, go from the label, the Roadrunner United DVD came out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, complete with uh, dubbed in crowd noises. Yeah. And um, uh, re-recorded guitars. But (laughs) hey, man, I'm I'm out front of house guy. I can't can't imagine the shitstorm that it must have been on the mixing desk just going, what the fuck is going on? Why is there seven of them on stage?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and people just sort of kept coming out. It was just like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. So, yeah, I I could not imagine.
0: That would be my worst nightmare. And I've I've done gigs (laughs) where people have done that, and they've just gone, oh, let me welcome to the stage my mate Steve. And I'm like, well, there isn't an extra mic on stage, so good luck, Steve.
1: <laughs> so, Steve, strum away, baby. Yeah. Northern yeah. It's,
0: it's a fucking nightmare. I fucking hate that show when it happens. I'm sure it'll all coordinate. If, if ever the front of house guy for that Rotary United show ever sees this, hit me up. I'll definitely have him on to talk, like, in just how much of a shit show it was. How, how
1: that all went.
0: Yeah, unless it was like, all like, really meticulously planned and I loved every second of it. But I just can't, I can't imagine it. It must have been chaos.
1: You know, I I feel like it was probably, I mean, it was it was definitely chaos backstage, but mm. I feel like it was probably, I mean, I don't think that the touring guys left much to chance. I think it was, you know, I think there was a Wrangler back there making sure that like so. the next people up were right.
0: I know it's like I know Andreas and Dino and Paul like were the like with a core band. And it's like, right, we get this, we understand this. But then the Scotty Hindus stomps out and like, fuck. I can't I just in my head I'm just like I can just picture even there's people on stage and they're not singing and they're just like drinking in it it, I could as the as the show goes on it gets more rowdy and then eventually everyone's on stage and it's It's like a little ramshackle I can't I just can't believe that all of that was planned (laughs) from a channel perspective from a mixing desk channel signal flow from instrument to PA I can't imagine it was like planned (laughs) right yeah yeah, that's just my own sort of like live show anxiety coming through there. <laughs> so, when, how did your relationship? Uh, what am I missing? Am I missing anything? I'm about to ask you how your relationship with Rhoda when it comes to an end, but I, I feel like we've jumped a bit.
1: Um, I don't know if you're missing anything from that. I mean, you know, I think you know it was it was it was just a you know it's a project that 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 came together. It was a Herculean feat by various people, whether it be Monty and Dave Rath from an A&R side or um, Harlan and Justin from a logistical side of getting mm. people here and there. And I know that, you know, Colin Richardson's wife had a lot to do with it as well. Yes. But I just talking about the people, you know, inside the inside the label. Um, yeah, it was just it was a lot to put together. And, you know, it, it got it done
0: mm.
1: <laughs> in the end. I mean, I guess that's all I can say about it
0: it happened
1: yeah it was a thing <laughs> it was it was a, it, it was it, it was great it was a great project it was a great
0: show um yeah well no Just one's done you. anything since like it so what, yeah. you, what else can you say man it's yeah it's good shit maybe they saw how much we sold and were like this doesn't work it. <laughs> Right. How does, how does your time at the label come to an end then? You, you said you left in 2006. I say
1: 2006. So, so it's kind of funny. So I'm going to, I'm going to combine your, your, your questions about my, you know, my best and worst and, and how I ended up leaving the label together. So, <laughs> okay. so, so, so the best, um, the best was actually, you know, as I said, I was a huge machine head fan. And, you know, I had thought initially when I first met Rob Flynn that it was the last time I'd ever see him because I literally met him when he asked to be let off the label.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and so I uh, obviously, you know, I became their product manager when they came back for Through the Ass of Empires and, um, you know, developed a good rapport with with the band and with Joseph, their manager.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and when they went to record their Illogies DVD, which I believe is at Brixton, I think in the UK.
0: Illogies. sounds about right. I think they did one at Manchester as well, didn't they?
1: Well, this was definitely just outside of London.
0: Okay. And
1: right, so, so, so they they flew me out there for the for, for the taping. Okay. Which, to me, you know, like, I mean, to have like you know your sort of musical heroes be like hey can we pay for you to come join us for this sort of you know major event it was their first dvd live you're Um, right brixton yep brixton yeah so um that was definitely my highlight i mean just you know being flown being flown you know across the across the ocean to go see like one of your favorite bands were you
0: doing any work or was it just a matter of
1: no, it was just a matter of like, they, they wanted to show me that they appreciated how much like I had, I had really like just, you know, busted my ass for them because yeah, yeah. I loved them. And, you know, they had, you know, they, they had gone from, um, what was, uh, the, the album with Bulldozer with, uh, Bulldozer, um,
0: was that the Supercharger?
1: Supercharger. They'd yeah. gone, you know, from that where they felt that they were just weren't getting any attention or anything. And they came back and. I was all about just doing everything I could to break them in the U.S. And um, so to just and and not only because, you know, they just happen to be a band that I love, but just, you know, to have a band show you that they appreciate what you've done for them. Yeah. um, Yeah. Because, you know, some bands are better at that than others. And, you know, I mean, you no matter what you do, Mm. no matter who you work with every once in a while it is nice to know that like someone appreciates what you're doing for that. Yep. Um, and so that was, you know, that was just, you know, when, when those people happen to be people that you really respect and like, that was definitely a high point for me. Yeah.
0: It's, it's doubly good.
1: Yeah. As far as a low point goes, I would say it was the Rover United concert. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I think the writing was on the wall for me. Mm-hmm. Um, as that concert was going on or you know in the days leading up to it so you know at the end of every year you would you would meet well before like you know in late November early December you'd basically have your review and you'd be you know told you're getting this pay increase or whatever and mine had been pushed to January of the following year right and everyone else's was in December. in
2: <laughs> right okay
1: and uh and so you know I, I could tell that 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 there was a very good chance that you know they were they were being very kind to not let me off to not fire me before the holidays
0: yeah, yeah. yeah um
1: so you know it was it was a very bittersweet night that like you know i was part of this huge um you know, this huge event celebrating 25 years of this, of this label. And, and, you know, I, I was an integral part of it, but I knew that it was probably the last thing I was ever going to be doing for the label. Yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, that was definitely a a, a bummer, you know, I mean, I, I, I would have liked to have, I mean, I, I had a great time that night and, mm. you know, I, I had formed a lot of relationships with a lot of the artists who played that night. So mm. I got to sort of spend the time with them. Um, but uh but I, you know, I I went through the whole experience knowing it was probably the last.
0: Yeah, um, and what was cause... the writing on the wall then? Was it just like you'd have to do have to you'd have to overshare, but there's always like a there's an instinctual feeling when you're in a job that's fated, right? So I guess was it that or was it just like was there a few sort of catalysts?
1: Yeah, I mean I think look, I I I was well aware. So so basically if I had to describe like I am I am the best worker you could want. I am one of the worst employees. Yeah. <laughs> like if you absolutely needed to get something done, I'm the guy you go to. And that's what I was at Roadrunner. <clears throat> I was the first one and I was the last one out because yeah. I didn't drink. <laughs> I never was hung over. Like I also loved my job. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And so if really like something had to be done, you gave it to me. If something had to be done, and you didn't want to get a shitty attitude about it. You probably would go to someone else. <laughs> right. So you know, I think that 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 dealing with that stick gets old after six years. Um, and you know, I think um, that I had just worn out my welcome.
0: You know, sure. you just
1: get that feeling when you stop being included in meetings that maybe you used to be included in.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 You know,
1: yeah. Or. Or you find out that something's happening with one of your projects that you were never even, you know, you know, no one ever even brought it up to you. Yeah, You're like that's really weird because usually none of this would happen without it going through me. You know, <laughs> so I mean, it, it, you know, it was not I, I was not, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes. It, it, it didn't take, you know, that to 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 see what was going on. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was unfortunate. It, it, it takes going to other places sometimes to realize how well something or how good you had it. Sure. And I think that, you know, Roadrunner being, I mean, other than six months at Island F Jam being really my my introduction to the music business, it was all I knew. Yeah. And so you sort of take it for granted, right? And then you go elsewhere and you're like, holy shit, Roadrunner really was on top of their game. Like so. So yeah so there was there was definitely some of that but you know with age comes wisdom right
0: sure so i'd
1: say that was uh yeah that was you know i could see the writing on the wall because you can definitely see uh you know you're being left out of things
0: i think one of the things i round round these off with as the as the music kicks in it fades out is what, like, can we, can we summarize like roadrunner? I know why I like roadrunner as a consumer, but have you got like any words or phrases or like any, any, anything that encapsulates the essence of why roadrunner is important?
1: Yeah. I mean, why it's important. I mean, I, I can say, you know, words that come to mind for me, um, just my experience with it, it you know, it's like a family, it was a team, mm. um, it was a group of people who were actually like united in a single goal. Yeah. Which, which was, which is a rarity. I think when something went wrong no one ever looked to point a finger, it was everyone got together to figure out how to solve it. It didn't matter. Right. You know, we, we, we were all unified in a goal. I mean, why is, why is it important? Um, I mean, I think to any metalhead, you know who? You know, music being probably one of the most defining aspects of their life. Yeah. Um, I mean, they they just made a shit ton of good music,
0: <laughs> and it wasn't an accident. It was, yeah, it, it wasn't was... an accident. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, it was just uh, you know they they weren't afraid to take the label. It wasn't afraid to take chances. Um, uh, and, and wasn't afraid to, uh, you know, maybe do things differently or do things, do things their own way, which was, yeah. uh, you know, obviously resonated, you know, not only did the music resonate, but the, 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 the label and the image that the label projected resonated with people. I think it was real.
0: Mm. It's the last great... I'm playing with the idea of it being the last great independent label. I don't think it's necessarily true. It certainly is for rock and metal, but...
1: Yeah, I mean... it's interesting to say that right because again you were talking earlier about like you know being able to how you experience music in your your formative years right Mm. so so because we're getting older right like new labels like a sumerian or something like that we may not see the way we see as roadrunner yeah because roadrunner came, I mean, came at a special time in the music industry, but also came at a particular time in our lives, right? And, and as you get older, I don't know, the coolest record label doesn't mean as much anymore, right? I mean, mm. I think I think music in general has been devalued now too. So, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to think that there's ever going to be a time where a label could make such a statement, I guess.
0: Like yeah. It, I think that's right. You know, I think that's that's correct. It, your opinion is factually correct um, in that sense.